Welcome to Alley and Pissarro. I'm Alan Alley. Jim Pissarro was almost with us this week. <laughs> We've got our friend James Ball with us, though. Hi, James. Hi, Alan. I'm, How are you? I'm doing really, really well. It's uh, You can feel springtime in the air after we've come through a, a really, really tough time with snow and ice and all kinds of horrible things here that we don't deal with very well. Uh, today looks like a very nice spring day. So we've got a lot to cover. Racism in math, uh, the $1.9 trillion bailout package, Biden bombs Syria and the media's reaction to that. Uh, a lot of in interesting topics to go through. I want to start out by the uh, picking back up on the racism in math. We talked about this ad nauseum last week, and KATU, one of our local stations, picked up on it. And they called me and said, would you like to do an interview? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. And we did a Zoom interview, kind of like we're doing here. Um, I made all the points that I made in my write-up, including things like uh, equating capitalism with racism and imperialism, I think it was. Yep. Uh, yeah, imperialism and racism. And that showing your work is somehow a bad thing and not getting the right answer or um, grading to the answer was a bad thing. And I uh, did the interview, got all the points in. He seemed to understand. He seemed to get it. Uh, he interviewed Janelle Bynum, a, a representative, a black representative from uh, Portland and a black math teacher. And I thought that was really the appropriate way to do this. I, I thought interviewing a black math teacher was absolutely right. And I know what I said. <laughs> and <laughs> He really cherry-picked what I said, and I think cherry-picked what Janelle said and what the black math teacher said, and the whole thing kind of came out like the Oregon Department of Education put out this, um, this suggestion to go to this class, and uh, that it really wasn't that offensive of a thing. Except uh, to us. Yeah, yeah, you saw the video, right? <laughs> It's yeah, um, you know what I've noticed when you're talking to the media is that that's what they're looking for is they're looking for those little sound bites. And so you just, I mean, you know this, but like they're going to take the, they're going to take stuff out of context. They're going to cut up your, your discussion. Um, so I, it's something that I've been working on is making sure that when I say something that could be sound bited to, um, to either say it in a, not inappropriately, but say it in a way that is going to make it not a good soundbite right. <laughs> because they're going to cut that stuff up. Yeah. I mean, we had such a good conversation last week about all the different intricacies, you know, and, th and this is how I, I believe this is how the left changes the, the culture and changes the narrative is they'll put 90% great stuff in there. They'll call it racism and white supremacy, which is going to get everybody riled up. And they're going to put those little, those little, little nuggets in there that like equating capitalism to racism. And, you know, you, they start these debates and someone like Janelle Bynum gets on and says, oh, well, it's mostly good. And you get the math teacher says, well, it's mostly good. And they completely gloss over the fact that there are some really terrible points in there, but it's, it's a vast, it's a great minority of points. And you really kind of have to, you have to look for them. But yeah. they're in there, 
And so if you come out as, like you said, like if you come out with any sort of criticism, they say, oh, you're criticizing your, your pro-racism or something, or right. they cut up your discussion and have like one soundbite where you say that you thought that there was troubling material in this, uh, in this micro course. It was, I, uh, I, I didn't, obviously I wasn't sitting in on the interview, but, um, I, I know just, <laughs> I can, I know what you would have said in that interview. Well, and I read what I wrote basically. And yeah. the whole point of equating capitalism to, uh, racism and imperialism was unbelievably offensive yeah. to me and it got to the root and they use it several times throughout that document they talk about it several times and they completely glossed over that point and then the black math teacher um he said something like well i think showing your work is a good thing and that's what they said which is opposite of what they right. said um Janelle clearly was disturbed by some of it, but she had to toe the party line and say, well, this is bold and we need bold yeah. things like this. And I, I, you know, when I, when I went back through it, it looked like it had been written and then by committee, almost like the platform of a political party, then by committee, people said, I want my piece in there because there are some good things in it. There are some things like you should be aware of how uh, when you write a story problem, you could stereotype people or you should be, you should make math attainable for everyone and show that everybody can have a career in STEM and anybody can be an engineer, which is exactly what I do all the time when I'm talking to kids. But um, the way this was warped around, it was a great reminder. And I actually don't think KATU is the worst offender. And the fact that they put it on, the fact that they raised it and they picked up on the discussion that we were having on Facebook and raised it, I applaud mm -hmm. them for that. But it's kind of like they couldn't, they couldn't take that last step, right? Yeah. They, well, it's, and, and this is another thing that I've, I've seen. It has to do with your, your naming conventions. It's, it's Black Lives Matter all over again. When you name something such a wonderful term of, we're going to get rid of racism and white supremacy, it makes it very difficult to criticize. And so you have you know the, the Puppies and Kittens right. organization that sponsors domestic terrorism. And <laughs> you can't then, it's very hard to criticize because all of a sudden you're against puppies and kitties. Yeah. So, uh, but the, as, as with anything, the devil's in the details, but the media doesn't really care about the details because the details don't make a good story. The detail, like the, the headline makes a good story. Yeah. So. No, it was, it was exactly that. It was, um, Alan, are you against dismantling racism in mathematics? Exactly. No. Exactly. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm against equating capitalism with imperialism and racism. I'm against handicapping all of the kids in math because you don't teach them math. I mean, if you don't get the answers in math, that isn't math. That's philosophy or something else. I don't know. This is, I even told them my story about 
um, I told it last week about being in engineering school and solving a problem on a test and getting a B on the test because I got the wrong answer, but I followed the right process. And that's the way it should be taught. Yeah. So anyway, we're up against a break. Uh, we'll be right back. This is Allie and Pacero with our friend James Paul. Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349 or proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Welcome back to Allie and Pacero. We almost had Jim Pacero this week. We've got James Ball, which is just as good. Hi, James. <laughs> Hi, hey, uh, we talked about racism in math. We'll talk about other math, like $1.9 trillion worth of math. And this is the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that the Democrats are putting through right now. They are doing it using a process called budget uh, reconciliation, which means that they don't need the 60 votes in the Senate to break a filibuster to get it through. So they're gonna be able to pass it with a 50% vote in the House and a 50% vote in the Senate. Um, what that means is they can pretty much do whatever they wanna do. They can put whatever they want in there. Uh, Republicans are outraged that it includes things that are beyond just COVID relief. My position is, look guys, elections have consequences, you know, and we put people on the Supreme Court when we had the opportunity to do it. They're going to put whatever they want in this package. Uh, James, have you looked through it at all? Are there not some things that you really, want to talk about? Or? Not really. Um, I know a friend, a, a, a Jeff Eager, who was a former mayor of Bend, has a uh, newsletter that he puts out every, every week. I don't know if you've read that, but he, he made an interesting point, called it too much too late. Um, oh. It's too big. Yeah. It's coming too late. Uh, COVID is, we've got a vaccine. We're expected probably by midsummer to have everyone vaccinated. Uh, not really necessary at this point. We need to focus on reopening the, the economy, not on just payments to, uh, to Americans. And my biggest concern with this and with every stimulus that we've done so far is just the long-term consequences of monetary policy and you know, I think we've talked about it on this podcast before of, you know, the, the genie's out of the bottle. You know, once once the government has discovered that you can solve all your financial problems just by printing money, there's there's no end to it. And I, I think that because Republicans did it first, now Democrats can do it times two. And then, you know, even when Republicans are back in control, they're going to they're going to call it conservatism by just continuing to do what the Democrats did. And, it, and it's never going to end. And we're going to end up with 20% hyperinflation. And not that's 20% is not hyperinflation, but 20% inflation just I, I I see this being a real problem 20 years from now. And that concerns me. Yeah, and um but yeah, to your point of putting stuff in there, uh, the pork, the $15 minimum wage. Um yeah, 
we lost an election. You know, if, if Trump had actually gone down to Georgia and done some campaigning instead of complaining about the election and sped, spreading fear and doubt among Republican voters, you know, maybe we, we would have won a couple of seats, those Georgia seats. And uh, who knows, maybe we could have been able to block these sort of things. But Trump was selfish and decided to focus on himself rather than on the greater good. And so uh, here we are. Yeah, to those points, I, I just posted a couple of links for people to take a look at. One is the real-time national debt clock, which is a kind of an extraordinary, uh, well, click on it and you'll see. There's numbers flashing everywhere, but the one in the upper left-hand corner, U.S. national debt now stands at $27.9 trillion. And, you know, when I first started talking about the debt, about 10 years ago, I think it was $13 trillion, something like that. And now it's $28 trillion. And, you know, people are going to point to that and say, see, Alan, you were saying that the sky is falling at 13 trillion, now it's 28 trillion and the sky hasn't fallen. Um, I actually saw Mitt Romney do an interview on this and they tried to pin him down. They tried to say, Governor Romney, when is too much, too much? You know, what's the number? Give me the number yeah. when we trip over into inflation. And Romney said, you know, I don't know. Nobody is, knows. But I don't want, I, I don't want to be driving on the edge of the cliff. And I don't, I don't know when it happens. And he said, we're, we're selling all this debt largely to China. Um, and the, the, the bill is going to come due at some point. Well, in time. my concern is that we, this is really uncharted territory. And, you know, the, I, I am not an economist. I've only done what I've reading on the internet, but, you know, we've, we've unlocked the money printer. You know, yeah. if we wanted to pay off that $27 trillion in debt, we just have to flip it to high gear and, uh, and pay right. it off. Of course, then there's other consequences of nobody's going to ever lend us money again. The, the dollar will fall in value because all of a sudden there's <laughs> many times more supply. And so, you know, that's how you get this inflation thing. But I, I'm worried that that's what's going to happen. Um, the, this, this is kicking the can down the road. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm less concerned about China trying to collect their bill because we just, we just print a bunch of money and give it to them. I'm more concerned about the inflation and the fact that the dollar is going to fall in value to who knows what. Well, and um, I think I told you during the Great Recession, everybody was printing money like crazy. You know, we were printing money like crazy. And the way this works is if the U.S. is printing money and there's no inflation, we're getting wealthier relative to the rest of the world because we're just creating more dollars. And I, I thought about it and I said, that can't be true. They can't be letting us do that. And it turns out it wasn't true that every other country I'd looked at was printing as much money as we were. As a matter of fact, everybody was printing a little bit more mm. than we were. So in fact, we were getting a little poorer relative to the rest of the world, which to the rest of the world is like giddy up, right? That's why yeah. the U.S. dollar didn't drop in value. Um, I would imagine during COVID, exactly the same thing is happening, that, that we're spending like crazy. We're, inf we're doing inflationary things, but the rest of the world is doing it 
too. Um, but you're right. At some point in time, <clears throat> if history is a, is a lesson, this all comes to roost. And I don't have any illusion that we're ever going to pay down $27 trillion, almost $28 trillion of national debt. What we'll do is we will, quote, inflate it away, meaning you, you trap it at a certain number, and then your economy keeps growing. And relative to the size of your economy, you're paying it with these future dollars that you've got lots more of. And that's the way you manage through the national debt. That's what we did after World War II because we had a huge national debt after World War II. Um, but go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say another thing that might happen that I'm, I'm also concerned about is losing our status as the reserve currency of the world. Um, in order to produce a $100 bill, the United States has to turn on the printing presses, whereas everyone else in the world has to produce $100 worth of goods and services. And we have that benefit because we are the reserve currency of the world. Uh, China is trying really hard to take that away. And if they do, if, they, if we start selling oil in yuan or gold or all these, these things that are traded internationally, all of a sudden... We, uh, we printing money is not does not have the benefit that it did before. Um, We've got and to I, again take a not break. economist. Let's, let's loop back and talk about this because I want to talk about Bitcoin and and the effect that it has on this as well. This is Ali and Pacero with her friend James Paul. The Portland Spirit is headed to the river. Hop on board today for great views of the Portland skyline and historic Milwaukee waterfront. See our local landmarks and bridges from a unique vantage point on the river. Grab a cocktail on our outer deck while enjoying some of our delicious local cuisine. Fun for the whole family with options including lunch, brunch, dinner, and the famous Heart of Portland cruise. Tickets can be purchased at portlandspirit.com. This is Ali and Pacero with James Ball. So James, you were talking about, <clears throat> we're talking about money and inflation. And one of the things that occurred to me is the dramatic rise in the price of Bitcoin. Mm. Um, and it, it doesn't correlate, but it, it follows the same trend that as you deficit spend the dollar and you print more dollars, the price of Bitcoin rises because Bitcoins are, are limited, yeah. right? They're like, in a way, they're like gold. And I know those of you that haven't studied this will, will scoff and go, oh, Alan, my God, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but, and my, and my, my downtown Portland, you know, certified smart guy friends talk about that. But fundamentally, Bitcoin correlates to the amount of energy required to produce it, the amount of electricity required to produce it. There's actually a tangible cost associated with printing a Bitcoin. Like there's a tangible cost, uh, or uh, mining a Bitcoin, there's a tangible cost with mining the gold. Yep. It actually costs money to mine gold. Um, it costs money to acquire the land and that sort of thing. It doesn't cost anything to print a dollar. As a matter of fact, uh, I had a friend that worked at the treasury and he said, do you know how they, <laughs> they inject money into the, the federal reserve system? I said, no. He said, there's actually a machine and it's got a bunch of switches on it. And they go over, it's like the nuclear codes. They throw the switches and confirm the amount two guys stick in these keys and they press a button and whoosh billions of dollars just pour into the federal reserve system. <laughs> and that's, and that's what we do. 
Yeah. It's, it, it's beyond imagination. But do you have observations on well, correlating with Bitcoin and that sort of thing? Yeah, so there's a technical reason for Bitcoin. Um, and if you look at the Bitcoin chart over the last 10 years since it's been an example or then in existence, um, it does this boom bust cycle. And it's done it four times now. Um, I believe we're still, I don't know if we're going to go up any higher or if we just hit the top. But um, basically, it's a technical thing that has to do with what they call the happening, where the block, the rewards for mining a, a block of, of the Bitcoin or of the chain um, get cut in half. And that happens roughly every once, once every four years. And that's more of a technical thing. I think it's, it's just coincidence that it, that it correlates with what's going on um, in the US. I, th I think that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are not well known or widely spread enough to be a real hedge against, I think they're just a speculative investment at this point. They're not really a hedge against um, inflation. Although, you know, maybe in 10 or 20 or 40 or 60 years, they could be once they've started, once they're, they're mass produced and everyone starts to own them. And I also think that the price will stabilize. You know, you're not going to see these thousand, ten thousand percent jumps in price once um, once it, it's it's relatively stable and once it's more widely um, widely held. So you've got a couple, a few companies that own Bitcoin these days. I mean, uh, Tesla, Elon Musk has famously bought some. Uh, MicroStrategy has brought has bought some. I mean, billions of dollars worth as, yeah. and they're doing it as as kind of a hedge against what's going on in the world economy. Um, but they are, you know, tip of the spear early adopters. I, I think, I don't think it has much to do with the economy at this point. It has more to do with the technical aspect of, of cutting the block, um, the reward in half. Yeah. That's but, interesting. I have a friend that um, actually, this is four or five years ago. If you can imagine, <clears throat> he had an investor come to him. We're semi conductor guys he had an investor come to him and say could you build me a uh, specific semiconductor to mine mm. bitcoins and he goes yeah sure so mathematician friend of mine got together with him they went to china they went to one of our foundries in china they designed this thing they had it built in china they assembled the boards they went out to moses lake washington they they bought power for you know a, a, a penny Pennies. or whatever yeah. Right. Yeah. They installed all this equipment and they started mining bitcoins. It, custom semiconductors designed to mine bitcoins. Racks and racks and racks of these things. Mine something like twelve million dollars of worth of bitcoins when bitcoins were a few hundred dollars a piece. Because they paid all their operating expenses and the electricity and then uh, had the coins mined at a cost that was less than than what they were valued at, less than a few hundred dollars. Uh, once the price, uh, once it became harder and harder to mine the coins, they would mine tens of coins a day, then a few coins a day, then a coin every week. Finally, it got to the point where the power was more expensive than the value of the coin, and they shut it all down and scrapped everything. And part of it was they had a bunch of guys in China that were locating not as sophisticated equipment right next to the dams in China to get super cheap power subsidized by the government. And they were just undercutting them. It was, it's a, an amazing story of supply and demand and technology and innovation. A lot of the 
as you dig into it. A lot of the Bitcoin innovation is coming from China, and there are people who actually move their operations, whether it's summer or winter, because of where the power is cheapest. So they'll take all those racks and racks of mining machines, and they'll they'll move across the country twice a year, what uh, to get the the cheapest power. Yeah, yeah very yeah. interesting the way it's happening. Well, and it's it was very entrepreneurial um, and is a wonderful study. You want to you want to do a study of math and supply and demand and look, people should should write up the Bitcoin saga and teach that in school. Um, I think it gets demeaned artificially. I, I think it's a really, really useful thing for for people to know and understand. And then the other part about it is the underlying technology of blockchain and this security of verifying the validity of each individual coin. We've talked about it on this show is exactly what we need in the stock market. We Or election integrity. And this is another thing we've talked about. Yeah. Or the um, U.S. dollar. <laughs> well, the U.S. dollar. So they're never going to do it with the U.S. dollar because you would have to have a finite supply. And well, the, the government doesn't want a finite but, supply. They want the ability to print money to, to adjust the economy even, on the fly. Even using uh, a, a blockchain to serialize mm. every dollar. Because right now, dollars don't, dollars used to have serial numbers on them. Yep right? Everyone had a unique identifier. And now the paper ones do, but the electronic ones don't. Yeah. Right. So even using a blockchain just to serialize every dollar so that you can track it, you can stop counterfeiting overnight. You can, you can track dollars. Then it, it, it boggles my mind. And, and this is why when things that don't make sense to me don't happen, like I do not understand why we don't serialize dollars. I don't understand why we don't serialize stock certificates and track them is very powerful people, organizations are making money off the inefficiencies of what we're currently yep. doing. Exactly. And, I mean, going back to the GameStop yeah. thing, that, that's how they were able to short the stock 150%. Because and, and they expected to make a lot of money. It, it happened that Reddit got a hold of it. But they, if if Reddit hadn't picked up on this, they would have just run GameStop into the ground, and they would have made billions of dollars off that. So let's segue into that. We we're at a break. This is Ali and Sarah with her friend James Ball. Good morning. This is Ali and Sarah with her friend James Ball. We almost had Jimmy with us this week. We'll get him on next week. We had a. Uh, between the two of us, we have a lot of technical background, but we're not able to pull off that. We, we will next week. But we're talking about blockchain and the implications that blockchain could have if implemented in other areas. One is certainly uh, the United States stock market. But another one, interestingly enough, could be uh, something to help us yeah. in elections. James, did you have an observation? On yeah. That? So there, there's discussion about vote by mail and all these different... so avoiding the political aspect of it. I know this is a political show of whether or not there was the, the Trump and friends who, who created this fear and uncertainty around the election process, but just in general, a great way to secure 
the election, any election would be through blockchain. So what you can do is the, the hard part that you can't do on blockchain is verify identity. So what you'd have to do is figure out a kind of a foolproof way to uh, verify your identity, either at a voting station or honestly, you could do it on your phone. If you could figure out a way, maybe take a photo of your, of your driver's license and then take a photo of your face to make sure you match. And I mean, there's, there's, there's ways you could do it, but that's not really the blockchain thing. The blockchain, the way that the, that would benefit is just being able to count the votes. So what you do is once you vote, whether in person, online, whatever, is now your vote is, is tallied. And what it does is they hash it against the, the blockchain. And so there's a unique identifier that says person A voted for candidate B and it is, it is hashed against the blockchain, which means it is unable to be changed. It is unable to be forged because you have a timestamp and you have a hash. Um, then what you can do is you can have two different, um, two different hashes that are created. One that shows the identity of the person along with all of their votes and another one that hides the identity that just says this is the, the vote. And so you're not you know, getting into people's houses and saying who voted for whom. So the, the, the anonymized one then goes to the, to the secretary of state. The non-anonymized one stays on your phone. And what you can do now is uh is share if anybody ever questions the integrity of the election you have an immutable unchangeable paper trail that is hashed against the blockchain that cannot be changed or forged and if you're ever curious about an individual who how they voted to make sure that your vote got counted all you have to do is take the hash that's stored on your phone probably in a qr code scan it and anybody in the world can verify that you voted that certain way and that your vote was counted. Yeah. And I think this is just a matter of time. <clears throat> when, yeah. when you're as old as I am, no, seriously, when you're as old as I am and you plus everybody younger than you is familiar with these systems and trust them, you'll be able to switch over and elections will be perfect. Um, it, I would imagine if you polled people that are as old as I am, they'd rather have paper ballots, right. which I think is insane right now. I mean, <laughs> it's... Well, the, the problem with, and not, not even really a problem, but, the, but the, the issue you have with an electronic record is that it, you're relying on a trusted intermediary. There is someone, whether it's the Secretary of State or the voting machine tallier or someone in the middle who has right. to be trusted to do the right thing, to tally things properly and, and report them properly. It's the, the county clerk. I mean, there, there's people in the middle and that's what the blockchain gets rid of is there is, there's right. no middleman. It's, it's just you and the blockchain. And like I said, once you have that, that hash, that receipt yeah. in a sense, anybody in the world can verify that you have voted and this is your vote and that it was counted. Yeah. So, no, and that's absolutely the way we've we've got to go, and it, it's all rooted in this concept of the blockchain, which was all developed around cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a shame that the the <laughs> media <laughs> has created this sort of stain of uh, on cryptocurrencies that they're somehow unreliable or that they're somehow 
dark and nefarious and bad and evil and all the technology around them gets gets tarred and feathered with it it's it's just not true this this fundamental technology yeah 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 and i haven't seen anything like this frankly since relational databases were developed when when i was about your age or a little bit younger i guess so there's nothing there's um nothing wrong with the technology and I think as the price continues to climb you're going to get more and more people making money off of it you're going to get more and more high profile people like I said Elon Musk just just announced that he bought a whole bunch of Bitcoin um, as people like that start buying Bitcoin the media narrative is going to change yeah. it has to after people start making billions of dollars off of this once Elon once <laughs> once Tesla is propped up by the price of Bitcoin rather than by selling Teslas um, the people will start getting on board. The, the mainstream will start getting in there. Well, the whole thing that Tesla is now going to accept Bitcoin in payment yep. for their vehicles. I, I mean, it, it, you start to create this parallel currency that, um, you know, you talk about what's threatening the reserve currency of the dollar. Yeah. It might be Bitcoin. I, right. Yeah, I think we're a couple decades away from that probably, but but yeah, I mean it's it's this is what the Bitcoin true believers on Reddit are talking about is that Bitcoin becomes the reserve currency and then everything is pegged to the Bitcoin. Um well, it's, it's almost it's a possibility. It's it's I mean, in a way, it is pegged to the Bitcoin. It's just the inverse of, you know, we currently say, well, it's 43,000 bitcoins to the dollar. If you invert <laughs> that, right? Right. It's it's point zero 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 one dollars to the Bitcoin. And if you started reporting it that way, that the dollar was fluctuating in value to the Bitcoin, right? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you, look at, you look at your CPI, your, your, uh, your basket of goods and services, and the dollar is much more stable against the CPI only, than Bitcoin only, is. Bitcoin fluctuates wildly. Because- only because you're buying and selling it with dollars. If you bought and sold it with bitcoins, the CPI would be bouncing all over the place. Well, yeah. I, sure. I mean, it, it, <laughs> I, I, sure. This is the reason I love doing this show because we talk about stuff at a level of detail um, that you just don't hear anywhere <laughs> else. <laughs> and I know it's a little fringy sometimes, right? I know we. We get out over our skis, and I'm not an expert in all these areas, but it's really, really interesting to think about this stuff in much more expansive ways. And um, I think that the discussion about how the underlying technology of, of uh, blockchain and the effects on things that we need to solve, I mean, we frankly need to solve voter integrity. We need to solve the stock market problem of, of uh, being able to do these naked shorts. So we'll come back and talk. We'll talk about bombing Syria, not with Bitcoins, but with like real bombs. <laughs> <laughs> and what's going on here in Oregon? This is Ali and Pacera with her friend James Ball. Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 
6349 or slash portland Welcome back to Ali and Pacero with her friend James Ball. Yes, Jennifer, we bombed Syria with like real bombs and jets. Now, you might not have noticed in the media that we bombed Syria. I don't think it's the narrative that the media wanted. As a matter of fact, I uh, I pulled up two headlines. Um, I didn't have. I don't think they're both from the New York Times. They they might have been. But the one from the New York Times about bombing Syria this week was Joe Biden confronts Iran-backed militias with Syria airstrikes, but Tehran's destabilizing activities are far from over. (laughs) Just about the same time in his presidency, I think it was four months into the presidency, Trump bombs Syria. Headline says, Syria airstrike, U.S. missile attack is a senseless and dangerous act by a Donald Trump regime. <laughs> oh, come on. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Really? And look, I actually support both of the bombings. I looked at why Biden did it. I think it's exactly the right thing to do. I think he did it in a measured way. I absolutely support it. I think we needed to send a message, especially going from Trump to Biden. You needed to say, look, Biden isn't going to be a pushover. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he sent a message. I, I don't know how many people were killed, but it was a very strategic thing. And it said, look, I'm watching you. I know what you're doing. Don't screw around. Right. But the way the media portrayed it, U.S. missile attack is a senseless and dangerous act by Donald Trump regime. It's like, come on. It, it, it's very interesting. I, yeah. I, I, and, and Jennifer didn't even know about it. Yeah, well, that's right? what I was saying in, on the break is I, I saw the headlines, but I didn't read too much into it other than we, you know, we bombed Syria. I don't know much of the details behind it. I know that Iran does a lot of um, proxy fighting, kind of the way the, the USSR used to do back in the day, uh, whether it's Hamas or Syria or all these, or, you know, I don't know, Iraq, they, they fund these groups that, so that they can kind of be hands off or at least pretend to be hands off. I think it's, it's the worst kept secret um, (laughs) globally that, that Iran funds all these uh, terrorist organizations around the Middle East. Right. Um, But they don't, they don't do it in their own country because they don't want (laughs) to get bombed in Iran. They want to get bombed (laughs) other places. Well, and that, so, um, that's another thing is I read some of the articles about it is um, they didn't want to bomb directly Iran or Iraq mm-hmm. that the United States didn't. So they kind of waited till the guys got over into Syria. And then it's like, Syria, who cares? And like nuked them. They didn't nuke them, but they bombed them. Right. And that's the politics of what's going on. They're trying to get Iraq back into the fold on this uh, 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 agreement that they had. Uh, another headline, I, I, I loved this one from the New York Times. I think it was the same article that had two different headlines. Um, using a carefully calibrated approach, the president hopes to restrain Iran's regional militia allies without undercutting efforts to reach a new nuclear deal. 
cool. using, using <laughs> a carefully calibrated approach, right? When, yeah. when Trump bombed Syria, they did exactly the same thing. They used exactly the same carefully calibrated approach. Did he get that? No, he got a senseless and dangerous act by Donald Trump. And, you know, as, as somebody of the um, minority party, I don't know what I want to call myself, it really is tiring to constantly be fighting the narrative that the media is putting out. And just the amount of work that I have to do to craft a message, source the message, uh, portray the message, double check all my background, double check all my facts. My, my, my friends spew crap out on Facebook all the time. I frankly don't have time to go through it. One of my friends put up, posted something about um, CO2 emissions from, from cattle. And so to, to write a thoughtful response, I'm looking at, at papers written about CO2 from cattle, and I start to find out that they include things like CO2 production from the feed for the cattle, CO2 production from the distribution of the meat from cattle. And you start to think about, well, the CO2 production from the distribution, you're going to be distributing some other food if you replace cattle. So, and this kind of stuff that I have to go through to write a simple response to a Facebook post while the media just, just well, and this is this stuff. This has been happening. Imagination. For, this has been happening for decades. You know, I I grew up re- listening to Rush Limbaugh. Uh, you know, rest in peace. And what, he used to call them the drive-by media because they've been doing this since the '90s, at least, where they'll just throw something at the wall and nobody ever calls them on it, and they just move on to the next thing. That this is exactly what he was talking about back when I was a kid. I wasn't going to talk about it because I don't want to turn it into just a media whining thing. But along these lines, um, in the Capitol riots, there was a, a Capitol policeman that was killed, as reported by rioters beating him with a fire extinguisher. Right. Um, it turns out that that's probably not exactly what it happened. It sounds like he died of a stroke. Yes. That, that was the na- yeah. latest thing that came out. Yeah. And, and that he actually went home, uh, sent some text messages, then felt bad, went to the hospital, died of a stroke. Now, that hasn't been confirmed. And what the media is trying to do right now to sort of cover their tracks on this is that uh, he was hit with pepper spray or bear spray during the event uh, that is actually what triggered a reaction that caused him to have this reaction to go to the hospital and die. Hmm. But, uh, all, and look, I'm not saying that the riot was valid, that people should have, I'm, I'm not supporting it at all. They should be prosecuted. They should be put in jail. What I am Agreed. saying is this, this hyper rush to tar and feather people to, to, to create a narrative, I think is, and without any sort of balance. And I'm sure people, when they listen 
listen back to this, they're going to come back and go, that Alan, he's just shilling for the right. He should, he's reading all those, those, and I haven't found a, a New York Times post yet that completely documents this. The New York Times has backed off from that he, that he died from the uh, fire extinguisher, but it's, it, it, it's very, very difficult. And, and I'm, I, I think as you do too, very it's careful about of, how we. Yeah. You have to be very careful when you talk to the media about how you, how you phrase things because they'll chop it up and they'll take something out of context for sure. Especially for those of us on the right. Well, this is what I said um, earlier in the week at another meeting that you and I were at Alan. I think one of the things that we can do as Republicans to counter this is instead of fighting the narrative, you just twist the narrative a little bit, take their issues and give conservative responses to them. Um, every conservative I've ever met believes that black lives matter, that mm -hmm. we, and we should be better at reaching out to that community. But the left has taken this, this movement and they've decided that they own it. And again, like I was talking about the, the puppies and kitties, you know, if you were to, if you were to criticize black lives matter and they had on their website for a while that they were against things like capitalism and the nuclear family, which, you know, I support those things. You know, I will be very clear in my support of those things and an organization that is opposes those things, I, I think deserves criticism. But if you criticize black lives matter, now all of a sudden you hate black people, which is not the case at all. So I think what we can do is take the black lives matter, um, mantle and start reaching out to that community and say, you know what, instead of fighting Black Lives Matter, let's redefine Black Lives Matter and what it means to support black communities. Um, you know, yeah. we're talking about capitalism. Let's, let's show the black community how capitalism can, can benefit them and help them on their path to entrepreneurship. I think that's how the Republicans can get behind I this. I think you're exactly right. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back. I want to continue this discussion. This is Ali and Pacero with James Ball. The Portland spirit is headed to the river. Hop on board today for great views of the Portland skyline and historic Milwaukee waterfront. See our local landmarks and bridges from a unique vantage point on the river. Grab a cocktail on our outer deck while enjoying some of our delicious local cuisine. Fun for the whole family with options including lunch, brunch, dinner, and the famous Heart of Portland cruise. Tickets can be purchased at portlandspirit.com. Welcome back to Ali and Pacero with James Ball. We're talking about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and capitalism. And James, one of the things I did last year was I made a donation to what I thought was Black Lives Matter. And then I tracked the path of my money through various organizations by I'd get receipts and emails back. And then finally the, the final receipt came back of where my money went and my money actually went to an organization and my money was only a dollar. So, uh, you know, right. Proof of it was just a dollar concept. Right. To a group called thousand currents. So I actually made my donation to a group called thousand currents. To your point, right on their homepage, one of the things that Thousand Currents is, is um, talking about is capitalism. What is our exit strategy? So, yeah. so my donation to Black Lives Matter, and I actually think the way to lift people, to lift a new generation of people out of poverty is through 
capitalism. That's what I fundamentally believe. My money went to an organization that says capitalism. What's our exit strategy? And then the thing we talked about at the beginning of the show um, on racism and math, they equated capitalism with imperialism and racism. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, this really is, I, I, this is aluminum foil time. So strap on your, your hats. This really is communism versus capitalism. Yeah. That's they, they've gone that far. This This isn't socialism. Socialism, socialism in its extreme form is, is communism. There is there. I don't know that there is a way to have a long-term socialist community because you, you have the, the, what socialism is, is the government is redistributing the wealth of the populace. And at some point it gets to the point where you you're redistributing more and more and more until there's none left. And then the only way that you can efficiently distribute all this wealth is through an extremely powerful central government extremely powerful central governments don't like to give up power and all of a sudden they start killing people. I mean, let's, you know, we've been talking about fascism a lot this past year. Communism has killed way more people than fascism has. I mean, you talk about Mussolini and Hitler and the millions of people they killed pales in comparison to Stalin and Mao. This communism is, is just as evil as fascism and we, and socialism leads to communism. Well, I would extrapolating that out, let's test this. Could we say that government governments have killed more people than anything? I think I'd have to do the math on that, but you're probably right. (laughs) You'd have to look at all the, we'd have to look at the the murders and the, and the terrorism and all that, but you're probably right. I mean, when was a terrorist attack killed 30 million people? I had never. But a friend, I had a friend in China um, and I was talking to him about the Mao and he grew up under Chairman Mao. Mm-hmm. And I said, did, did Chairman Mao, did they really kill, you know, millions of people? And he goes, oh, yeah. I said, they did? He goes, sure. I said, do you know anybody that was killed? He goes, oh, yeah, my uncle. Your uncle was killed by Chairman Mao? He goes, no, his, his, his town was killed. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he lived in a town of about 50,000 people, five zero thousand. It was identified as a town of, you know, un- the kind of people that were thinking about, uh, you know, horrible things like capitalism. But, you know, it was a town that was, a, that was identified as dissidents. And they killed all 50,000 people in the town. And that was just like normal so you made sure that you didn't you didn't stick your head up right you didn't well you you were telling i mean this is and this is goes to kind of china in general and their their lack of respect for human oh, life yeah. i mean you, you mentioned it on the uh on the rational republican podcast um of just you've got a billion peasants and they don't have the judeo-christian background that we do where life is sacred and you know whether or not you believe in christianity or judaism or or one of the you know abrahamic religions yeah. that that um promote human life as sacred they don't have that culture at all and killing peasants is it, it's just part of the the chinese culture and right. it's it's not seen as 
the awful thing that we would see it as here in the West. No, I, I just interesting. Probably, I, I probably told the story on your podcast where we were um, driving on a new freeway in China uh, years ago, out in rural China. And there was a truck and the truck was driving along the side of the road and he was picking up things that looked like they had collected trash and put it into bags. And then they were throwing the bags up into the truck and since immaculate road. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. Look at what. And then I realized there's something funny about those bags. They're all exactly the same size. And, and I asked the guy, what is it? And he said, Oh, those are, those are dead peasants. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, the peasants, they, they come out and they sleep on the freeway at night because the blacktop is warm. And then when the cars and the trucks start coming during the day, they hit them and kill them. So that truck goes along and picks up the dead peasant bodies every day. And <laughs> I, right. Yeah. And we don't, we don't get it. I mean, we really, we really do not understand. And that frame of mind is, uh, is something that's beyond our imagination. And they don't think anything of it. I think this is they, important to just in general. And, that, you know, I, I spent three years in Afghanistan and different culture than the Far East, but Middle East they think about things differently. And it's really hard if you've spent your whole life in the United States, you kind of just assume everybody thinks the, the way that we do. I mean, you know, they're, they're, you know, different ethnicities, but everybody's basically human. And, and uh, it's, it's interesting to deal with different cultures and to see those things firsthand. You know, it, it's one of the hardest things we had to deal with is getting people to trust their central government because, <clears throat> in the Pashtun culture, you look at your fan, it's, you know, me against my brothers, me and my brothers against my cousins, yeah. me and my brothers and my cousins against the world. You know, it's, you look at the family structure and they, they don't, they just, they, they look at their family and their village as the ultimate um, place to, um, to put your loyalty. And so this is how the Taliban took over in the first place is they would take over one little village and of 200 people and then they would move to the next little village of 200 people and they just moved across the Pashtun desert in southern Afghanistan because and nobody ever banded together to stand up to them because the the culture was it's none of my business you know oh they're like it just did it did not fit with their culture that hey if we all band together we can fight these guys and we can stop them from taking over towns it was ah they're not bothering me they're just taking over my friend or my my neighbor who I don't really like anyway so it just an example of different cultures. And I think it's really important to, to travel and to experience these cultures so, to have a well-rounded view want, of, of the world. I go back and explore that in the next segment. Cause I think your, your experience in Afghanistan is, is very, very important to our understanding of, of this issue. This is Ali and Pissarro with our friend, James Ball. Welcome back to Ali and Pissarro with our friend James Ball. We're talking about uh, some of his experiences in Afghanistan, my experiences in China. And, you know, James, I, I was struck by what you were saying is that um, the local communities were concerned about themselves and that they weren't as concerned. 
And I've always been a person that a fundamental tenet of the Republican Party is more local control. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I've been trying to think of with the country sort of bifurcating um, and things like the $15 minimum wage, for example. I don't know why you would have a national $15 minimum wage, which means somebody working in Burns, Oregon, gets the same minimum wage as somebody working in Manhattan yeah. in New York City. That, it, I, it's inconceivable to me, yet that's what we're going to do. And what it does is it puts a huge burden and penalty on those rural communities well, and those communities where the cost of living is dramatically lower. You can't afford to pay somebody $15 an hour. And let's talk about the right origins of the minimum wage to begin with, where, you know, the, the minorities would come in and try to undercut these white jobs. And so you set up a minimum wage, which means that you're, it, it basically kept blacks and other minorities out of the workforce. You know, this, this is, you want to talk about <laughs> racist, um, background to things that this is how you keep minorities out of the workforce is you raise the minimum wage. It's, uh, well, and now, of course, it's being touted as this this great progressive thing. Well, and the thing, um, you know, as a, as a, again, looking back at my history, we used to make money cutting lawns, snow shoveling. My first job was a busboy, and I made, I think it was 60 cents an hour um, as a busboy, but I made tips. Mm-hmm. And I could make two, three, four dollars an hour in tips and what it what it instilled in me and those tips were directly proportional to the amount of work I put in and I I developed I I literally remember this and bringing home money to my dad and showing him if I busted my butt I could make $30 a night in tips if I just mailed it in I might make $8 a night in tips that my effort was directly proportional to the tips that I made. And my, my salary was inconsequential, mm. right? Um, and it taught me something. Now, I don't think a purely, um, a pure system of pure capitalism is going to work. You've got to have rules. Yeah. But... You know, when you raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, I saw it in our our campaign is that we could pay people, you know, $10 an hour and it made sense. But at $15 an hour, it it broke the the mold. Um, You read uh, Shoe Dog, Phil Knight's book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He makes a really good good points in there because he yeah. tried to do this out in uh i don't know wherever they were they were producing their shoes because they've, they've moved around a lot but he yes. was saying what they did is they tried to raise the wage that they paid people and the government called him in and told him to stop he said somebody manufacturing shoes cannot make the same right. amount as a physician you are breaking the economy stop it and so his point was the best way to root to raise the standard of living for the poorest people in a community is a a is these entry level jobs many many entry level jobs raising the wage is is not really a good way to help that that lowest class of wage yeah. earners 
um, what you're doing is you are, <laughs> you know, if you can hire two people at 750, you can only hire one at 15. Right. And so now, yeah, one person is making $15 an hour, but one person's out of work. So, you know, and maybe this works for these giant corporations, but I mean, for my business in, in, oh. in general, I, you know, small business can't afford to pay a lot more than we already are. No. So it's just the, the cost of, of running a business is very much higher proportionally for small business. Well, and your business is, is selling products to people that are higher on the food chain. This is the way, you know, these businesses work. And if you just raise your costs, you have to raise your price. If the rest of the food chain didn't change, you're, by definition, you're going to lose some customers because mm -hmm. there are some people that just won't, they will choose not to have your, your product. Um, yeah, we saw that in China. And one of the observations that one of my friends made is, um, Alan, the, the thing that is the incentive for people is iPhones cost the same in China as they do in the United mm -hmm. States. And everybody wants an iPhone. So, so at, at entry-level uh, wages, I can't buy an iPhone, but I want one. So I'm going to figure out a way to work harder. I'm going to figure out a way to advocate for higher wages. I'm going to, I'm going to push because I want that iPhone. As a matter of fact, in, in China uh, a few years ago, they came out with clones of iPhones, things that looked exactly like iPhones, but they weren't iPhones. They were right. Androids, but yeah. it looked like iPhones. And people bought them, but um, people didn't really like them or want them. They really wanted the real iPhone. They wanted the real thing. And then a funny thing happened. They all got more wealthy. And then they said, I want the top of the line Chinese phone because they were mm -hmm. nationalistic. And they wanted the Chinese phone. And the Chinese phones were bigger and had bigger batteries. And they ended up being the same quality because all the factories that made iPhones <laughs> were now making these Chinese phones, right. <laughs> right? And they knew all the quality metrics and standards that made an iPhone. So we went through this whole cycle, but, but creating aspirational goods. I, I said in a speech the other day that People don't come to America to be Democrats. People come to an America because they want freedom and self-destiny. That nobody ever bought a new F-150 using food stamps. You know, and, and that's why you come here. And I think that's the secret for uh, going forward for the, the Republican Party is those, those are the people that we need yeah. to recruit. Those are the folks that we align I'm with. I'm worried about a higher minimum wage is also, yeah, it's, it's training people to rely on the government. It's training people that I am, I am perfectly capable of getting by on the minimum wage. And the, way, the only way I'm gonna, ever going to get a raise is if the government comes in and, and makes a higher minimum wage, where that's not the truth. And the truth is you can get a higher wage if you work for it and you go to take classes and you apply for new jobs and learn new skills and work your, your way up the ladder. And the, this is going to sound weird, but it doesn't really matter if that's true or not. It's what matters is that people believe it. 
if people believe that they can go up, move up the economic ladder and they see people do it and they understand that minimum wage is a stop is, is, is the minimum of what I can do. And I can do much more than that. Um, that's how you have a capitalistic society well, flourish. And that's what we need to be training. People. A, a friend of mine who was a union organizer um, and worked in the government, very astute guy said, Alan, uh, unions failed in the private sector. And what happened was they turned to the government and now the government is trying to become the union for everyone. Mm. So, so if you start to think about it, you're, you're exactly right. If I feel like the only way that I'm going to get a raise is the government raises the minimum wage then the government has become my advocate. The government has become my union. And it really is the government versus private sector employers. And it sh I, I don't think it should be that way. Agreed. The, 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 uh, Reagan said something like, um, we're a country where we have a, we have a government, not the other way around, meaning we're a country of people that have a government, not a government that has people. And if you think about monarchies, if you think about Europe, if you think about they have a government and they're subjects, we have, we have citizens that then hire a government. And that's the fundamental thing that we're struggling with right now is, and, uh, and I, I, it, I'm so inspired by by the the new generation of Americans that we that we have that have come here to to help us do that really. Yeah, I think it's a conservative versus liberal mindset or worldview is kind of the the and this is maybe I'm wrong liberals in the chat feel free to tell me I'm wrong but the liberal perspective is there is a a better society and it's the government's job to get us there to make incremental change to get us a better better society, whatever that better society looks like. Whereas a conservative perspective, mindset, worldview, is that the government's purpose is to protect the rights of the individual so that you can make whatever world you want. Yeah. And it's just very, very different on the role of, of the role of government in, in, in our yeah, lives. You know, I talk that my grandfathers came here from Syria and from uh, Italy and they were teenagers. They were 13, 14, 15 years old with nothing. And they were escaping those societies where they had no future. They had no upward mobility at all. They were born into a certain class of people and that's what they were going to do. They were going to be, uh, I, uh, we were, I was in Europe and I was looking at this church and there were these gargoyles on the church. And I asked the guide, how long did it take somebody to carve one of those gargoyles? And they said, oh, about a hundred years. And I said, how could one person do that? One gargoyle. And they said, well, what would happen is you'd be carving it your whole life and then you'd train your son and then your son would carve it his whole life and he'd train his son and his son would carve it. And maybe by the time you get to the third guy that they were, and, and that was the way, that was your lot in life. Yeah. There was no upward mobility. There was no, there was no future. 
Well, they came here and, and created a life for themselves and, and created self-destiny and bought houses and bought cars and raised families. And, you know, and it was, it's a miracle. I mean, it literally is a, a miracle. And I don't want us to lose sight of that. And people that are coming here, they haven't lost sight of that. You know, that's why they come. Mm-hmm. So it's something that I'm very passionate about is 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 helping people have those opportunities that that i had and uh and maintaining that that aspiration of the american dream so i think that pretty much covers what we wanted to do today <laughs> low news week. uh we could talk about covid where are the vaccines i'm still wondering about that yeah. <laughs> i i actually qualify now i have no way of, you know i've I've gone on a couple of websites and if I'm not sitting there clicking refresh, refresh, refresh at, you know, 11 or 12.01 in the morning or whatever. <laughs> but then a bunch of my friends that are like, well, I knew this doctor and he kind of had a couple yeah. extras and slid one my way. I don't know how you get one. I don't know. I, right. Do you know? I, I think I'm just going to start telling people that I had one already. Oh, there you go. Cause I, I caught COVID, so I have the antibodies, um, uh-huh. which I, I just tell people that I already got it. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I, I had a friend that just got... Uh, Do we want to end the show or... Oh, yeah, sorry. We, we will in a second. I, I, uh, um, I had a friend that got a, uh, a vaccine, and what he's hearing through his network of people that are getting it is that if you've had COVID, there seems to be a high correlation with adverse reactions to the vaccine. Well, so I don't know that, why you'd get the vaccine if you had COVID because the, the whole purpose of the vaccine is to get your body to build antibodies. If I caught COVID, I already have the antibodies. I don't <laughs> know why I wouldn't even so, need the vaccine. <laughs> we'll do this next week because I want to prepare for this one, but I'll, I'll give people a vignette of this. So it turns out that the number of people that catch COVID and are asymptomatic is high. And it's, it's at least 65%. It might be higher than that. So if you catch COVID and you have no uh, reaction, you have no uh, manifestation of it, um, you, you never knew you had it, right? You might have the sniffles or something, but you never even noticed that you had it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one group. The next group is that you have it and you have some manifestation of it, but it's not very severe, mm-hmm. right? It's like, it's like the flu. Okay. And then there's, you have it and you get really super sick and, and, and some of those people even die, right? The vaccine gives you the antibodies and is 90, 95% effective that you won't have severe symptoms. And what I'm doing is, is doing a correlation between the people that um, have it and are asymptomatic, have it and have light symptoms, and then have it and get very sick and stacking that up against when you get the vaccine. And I think what we're going to find is the vaccine buys us about 10%, that there's about 10% more people if you get the vaccine that won't get the severe symptoms. Um, it's not reported that way, right? Mm-hmm. And 
uh, I want to make sure I've got all the data and I've got it all sourced before we roll it out on the show, but we'll, we'll do that next week. In the meantime, stay safe, get vaccinated, <laughs> unless you've had it. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next week. This is Allie and Pacero with our friend James Ball. Thanks for listening. This has been Allie and Pacero with your hosts, Alan Alley and Jim Pacero. The podcast is produced by James Ball. Be sure to follow us on Facebook. And if you'd like to contact the show, you can send an email to alan at alanalley.com.